to a cause Good days to you, I'll tell Of how the good old union Is coming here to dwell Tell me which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boy? Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Sam Rouse. Uh, I'm an Arise Festival volunteer coordinator, and I'm absolutely ecstatic to be part of this event, bringing people together this evening to look at how we respond to Jeremy Hunt's statement today. During the deepening cost of living crisis, and also this period of deepening resistance to the Tory offensive as well, I'm pleased to say that there have been well over 500 people registered in advance of the meeting and thousands more will be joining us on social media too. As well as protesting the Tories, it's vital we understand their agenda and put forward a real policy response to it too, so that we're really setting out the alternative. And millions of people need no less than that. So this event couldn't come at a more important time. And the Tories have used the pandemic uh, to further restructure the economy in the interests of the super rich, whilst attacking our right to resist. And now they're unleashing an even bigger class wall um, against the overwhelming majority of us. And we, we've seen some of that today and more is certainly coming. They're doubling down on austerity and they're including further neoliberal attacks on working people and their living standards. We need today to look not only at what today's statement and the other key policies announced this week mean, but also what we can do to resist as well and what the policy alternatives are that, that put people first. As this session goes on, Please post your questions in the comments below the stream on YouTube and in the Q&A section on Zoom um, down below. We'll try to put some to our panel as we go. Please also tell us where you're from, um, where you're tuning in from and what actions you're involved in too, in your area or in your union. What key policies you think should be part of a left's alternative to what's going on right now. Please also donate at the link provided so Arise can continue hosting important events such as this and support other campaigns and links um, in, in the chat uh, that we put in the chat throughout the event, including by sharing the stream of this event on Twitter and Facebook so even more people tune in. Um, our speakers uh, for this vital, uh, vital discussion will all introduce for up to seven minutes each and then um, if people stay with us, uh, we'll move on to your questions. So I'm delighted now to move um, on to hearing from, from our speakers and our first speaker this evening is, uh, is John McDonnell, uh, the former Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer. John, over to you. And thanks so much thanks, for being here. Thanks a lot, Sam. Um, I've come from the House of Commons this afternoon where the um, budget statement, well, the uh, fiscal event statement, the autumn statement was made. In fact, it was a budget and there'll be a debate next week and there will be some vote some some individual elements of that budget that's the the parliamentary process um, it's worth reminding ourselves about what we've been saying for the last 12 months um, in terms of what we want any government to do and it was around first of all recognizing the struggle that people were having just to survive in the cost of living crisis so we were arguing if you remember for inflation proofing of benefits pensions and wages we're also saying that the inflationary cycle that we're in now, the spiral that we're in, is not caused by wages, but by profits. It's a profit inflation, profiteering inflation spiral that we're in. So what we needed to tackle inflation was actually price controls, price controls on energy, on rents. And also, we, if you remember, we discussed at some of these meetings 
the need for examining price controls on basic foodstuffs because of what was happening. Um, and it wasn't, if some of you recall, Ampetifer was made the point in a number of articles and in, in some of the meetings that we've hosted, it wasn't necessarily food supply, it was food speculation where billions had moved from individual other products, but into food products for speculation. And as a result of that, prices were going up. The third area we, we were arguing for, if you remember, was in addition to the inflation proofing, in addition to rent and, and other energy and um, food con price controls, we were also saying that what's desperately needed is a recognition of the, well, the existential crisis that we're now facing as a result of climate change and how we needed a Green New Deal investment in, in tackling climate change, but also how that would have to incorporate, if it's going to be successful, public ownership of basic utilities, water in particular, but also energy. That was what we were arguing for. What? Let's compare what we got today. Well, first of all, the backdrop to this, and Oslam and um, Andrew Fisher and, and will go in more detail about some of the specifics of the the economy at the moment and what and the detail of some of the stuff that we got today. But the backdrop to this is the we've had chaos, absolute chaos. Before Johnson went, we had this um, trundling through of another level of austerity under Sunak and Johnson, despite them trying to disguise it, there was. But then with Johnson going and and trust taking over, we had absolute chaos with the quantum budget. The market, even the markets had no confidence in them. You saw interest rates being forced up and hitting mortgages as well, and even a threat to pension schemes too. So what the Tories were trying to do today was get a message across that this was steadying the ship and that they were working, the government was working in lockstep with the Bank of England on its overall strategy. And it was almost as though, look, the grown-ups are back in charge. What was interesting, the Office of Budget Responsibility its analysis of the economy at the moment is predicting a recession at least a year long. It's predicting that um, household income will fall by 7% um, by 23-24. That's the biggest drop since records began way back in the 1950s. So what they're predicting is a recession and hardship. And because of 12 years of austerity, people haven't got the financial re resilience to respond to that, that recession. They're also predicting that unemployment will increase from 1.2 to 1.7 million. The Bank of England is actually saying more likely to be over for 2 million, the level of unemployment. What's interesting, this argument from the government is that they're working in lockstep with the Bank of England means actually they're working together on an agreed agenda, the Bank of England increasing interest rates, the government introducing austerity measures, which forces the recession to be deeper and possibly longer. They're, they're praying for a shallow recession. But even if it's a shallow recession, as they would describe it, people haven't the financial resilience to survive that. Um, Andrew Fisher will go through some of this detail, but he pulled out um, from one article he's found, one piece of information which I used in challenging Hunt in the, in the House of Commons today, which was, Housing repossessions, mortgage repossession orders have gone up 500% over the last 12 months. For private landlords, landlord repossession orders over 160%. Housing is always the canary in the mine when you're trying to assess how people are coping because most people 
when they do their budgets, they prioritize keeping a roof over their heads. So if people can't afford to keep a roof over their heads, it shows you how bad things are at the moment. And it's a worry because what wasn't in the budget today, we forced them, I think we forced them by our campaigning to inflation-proof pensions with the triple lock and also to inflation-proof benefits to a certain extent. However, they did nothing on wages whatsoever. So what we've got is a recession coming people lacking any financial resilience to respond to that because they've literally run out of funds and they're faced with wages. Wage increases basically below the rate, uh, below the rate of inflation, effectively a wage cut. And if you're in the, the private sector at the moment, average wages are going up 6%, inflation's 11%. If you're in the public sector, imposed wage deals of 2%. So you're talking about a 9% cut in your income as a result of that. The reaction is obviously people are angry and they're, I think they're angry because as much as anything, they're frustrated because they can see that actually they're not going to survive over this coming period, they're certainly in terms of their standards of living and quality of life. And that's where I think the Labour and Trade Union movement comes in. People are mobilising now and you've seen the industrial relations ballots where people are voting for a strike action because they can see what's happening, they can see the cuts that are coming to their incomes. But the other issue as well that came today was the big announcements around expenditure, public services expenditure, supposed increases in terms of education, health, etc. If you look at the real figures, actually what happens is it's half of what they need, certainly in terms of health. And in other government departments, it's another round of austerity cuts as well. In addition to that, the schools and the health service and all the other sets, the local authorities, are told basically they will have to deal with inflation and they will have to deal with any wage increases that they want to pay out. So that means actually another crisis, particularly in the NHS, also in social care, also in schools. But interestingly enough, in local authorities, although they'll be able to increase council, their council tax, a lot of our local authorities, even if they increase the council tax, the, the tax base isn't big enough to be able to get the money to protect services themselves. So we're seeing at the moment local authorities actually saying, hands up, we're on the edge of bankruptcy. That's the situation we're facing now. So the reality is it all, it all leads to resistance. There's nothing, no other choice. The resistance through our trade union movement in terms of taking industrial action to protect wages and actually also to protect our public services. In addition to that, it does need now the Labour Party to come forward with its own alternative, an alternative programme that will take us into government. The election will come in 18 months' time. We've got to stop telling people now what we need to do. And I think, you know, it's interesting in the Financial Times this week, even Martin Wolf, the commentator, said to politicians, look, grow up and start talking realistically about the taxation of wealth, the role of taxation of land, carbon taxing and budgets to make sure that we tackle the the environmental threat that we have at the moment. And I think that's where we come in to put forward that alternative, which is based upon growing the economy. Of course it is, but you have to grow the economy on the basis of making sure people have decent wages, that we invest in terms of uh, our infrastructure, of course. And where does that money come from? Well, it comes from a combination of having a fair taxation system where you tax the city, you tax the rich, you tax the wealth that's, that's that people at the moment so undertaxed on and at the same time you have a long-term plan of investment which is based upon the green new deal and greening our economy overall that's the situation that we're now in as i say Oslo and andrew will take you through more detail of that but i think 
we're in a struggle and we have to accept that and inflate what's happening with regard to this recession it's causing real real hardship for those in work but especially for those actually on benefits because even though they're arguing that they're inflation proof benefits themselves no they haven't what's happened is because of the energy cap changes most people will be hit by either 43% or 45% increase in their energy costs and you know who that will hit the hardest it will hit those people on benefits and I fear at the moment that we're going to have another round of people's lives being put at risk as a result of austerity having already seen 330,000 people die as a result of austerity over the last 12 years so the solution resistance and that's what we need to be planning for now both in terms of the labor movement of the labor party but also in terms of the trade unions it's on those picket lines joining in those demonstrations occupations and yes on those picket lines discussing the alternatives that we need which is a socialist program solidarity thank you so much for that john yeah absolutely resistance is <laughs> is the, on the order of a day and i think you're right too to to kind of highlight the double speak as well you highlighted the nhs but there was also the thing on schools as well which Actually, when you read the OBR report, they, they talk about an increase, but actually, what, it, it actually works out as the same per capita per pupil. So it's, it's not an increase at all, it just holds things down. So thanks so much for that. Um, I'm just going to go to our next speaker now, um, who will address you very briefly, and that is Matt Wilgress. He is the indefatigable uh, organiser, one of the organisers of, uh, of Arise Festival. Um, and he's just going to talk to you a little bit about Arise and what's coming up. Thanks, uh, Sam. Um, not sure about that word <laughs> in its history. Anyway, um, thank you very much. And thank you everyone for coming. Great to see so many people here and great to have such good speakers. Um, the main thing I want to speak about is on what you can, what we've got coming up in terms of what John was talking about. Um, and it'll be enough opportunity to hear some of the people here today and a lot of other people. And that's our so Solidarity Struggle and Socialism Conference at Conway Hall on December 10th. Um, other than our fringe meetings at TC and Labour, it's our first in-person event for a long time. Um, and a lot of people obviously appreciate these online events and we'll keep them going and we sort of become the main place on the left for these online events. But we're also having this physical event. Um, it's got left MPs on it, but also more important, it's got community groups, anti-racist groups, trade union groups, environmental groups. Um, it's going to be over 15 different sessions. There's over 40 different organisations represented at the event in some way unions groups and so on so please do go there please buy your tickets now um if you're unwaged or low wage we're holding them at five pounds even though it's quite an expensive venue so please do get those tickets and come along and that brings me on to my second point which is if you are on this call and you do appreciate what we're doing please do donate 20 pounds now or what you can afford we currently have this appeal to raise an extra two thousand pounds and one of the things in that is to cover an element of the booking for the hall the conference but another thing is to subsidize those five pound tickets for pensioners and retired people students unwaged people low-waged people and so on so if you can and i know it's very difficult for a lot of us at the moment for people who can if you can make that 20 pound donation if say 50 people on this school gave 20 pounds of what they could afford that would make such a massive difference to everything we're doing at the moment so thanks sam i look forward to seeing people on december the 10th and thank you everyone for your support thank you yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Matt. I really do register for the conference. It looks like it's going to be amazing. And um, just to emphasize too, none of this can happen. None of these things can happen without donation. So please do click on that link as well. Um, to introduce our next speaker um, is Holly Turner from NHS Workers Say No. Um, and I'm sure like 
John finished on talking about the resistance. Holly's at the forefront of that. Um, so I can't wait to hear from her. Over to you, Holly. Thanks, Sam. Um, yeah, so I'm going to talk a little bit about, I suppose, what's going on in the NHS, what we hope to see in the budget. Unsurprisingly, we didn't see what we hoped we were going to see. Um, we're currently in an industrial struggle. Over 800,000 NHS workers have been balloted for industrial action nationally um, with the Royal College of Nursing just achieving a mandate to strike nationally for the first time in their over 100, 100 year history. So that gives you a flavour of the mood within the NHS. Um, but what we've seen today really, um, which John spoke about as well, is we know Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak, they're unleashing a new wave of austerity on people in Britain and on our public services. And this is a government who have crashed our economy and now they're leaving the working people to pay the bill. They claim that they're putting the NHS first with this newly announced 3.3 billion funding increase, but this really is another real terms cut and it's going to go nowhere to solving the issues across our health service. This is a health service with a deficit of 35 billion a year. It requires continued funding, which meets the rises in inflation and really ensures that we have a healthcare system that is going to remain free to all with a workforce that's well resourced and staffed so that it meets the needs of society. Now, the UK's health system, it's in complete crisis. There is record demand, waiting times, a growing backlog, and we know that the winter pressures are coming, which are only going to be exacerbated by the rising in living costs, which, which everyone is facing. Um, I've heard Jeremy Hunt again today repeating the line that increased demand is down to an ageing population, but I think we really do need to be putting that to bed when, in fact, life expectancy has slowed and actually reversed in some of the most deprived areas. Health inequality is at its worst. The cost of living crisis is impacting on people's physical and mental health, and that is putting pressure on the NHS. And the cost of living crisis, it really is a public health issue. Now, this crisis in the health service, it's been years in the making. A recent report by the Health Foundation revealed the UK has spent around 20% less per person on health each year than similar European countries over the past decade. And that data actually shows we'd have needed to invest around 40 billion every year for the past decade to have similar outcomes to those similar European countries. The pay award we're looking at for staff um, for next year, which is now being predicted for 2023, is down to 2% when we were awarded 4% this year. This is another real terms cut and it will actually mean a cut of up to £1,500 for many staff across the health service. I've worked in the health service for about 15 years and have probably lost over 20% of my wages in real terms. Now, this cut that we're going to face again a further cut next year is going to result in more staff leaving it's just going to pile more misery on the ones who remain who will be expected to do more with even less working under brutal conditions and really the patient's going to be paying the price with their health and actually with their lives so as i mentioned 
um, at the beginning, large parts of the NHS and ambulance service have achieved a mandate to take strike action. Yet today, we have heard no assurances for any of these groups of workers. And the Chancellor really missed a vital opportunity to address the workforce crisis in the NHS and this, this restorative pay rise, which is desperately needed to retain staff who are just leaving in their droves. It was, it was actually really disappointing, I suppose unsurprising, to hear no mention whatsoever of the pay crisis across the public services and what that actually means. And we want to see our ministers offering public sector workers the pay rise we're owed, not driving public sector workers to using food banks, selling back annual leave to make ends meet. You've got NHS workers sleeping in their cars because they can't afford fuel to get to and from work. This is a government they're choosing to make public sector workers poorer whilst they're lifting the cap on bankers' bonuses. We just can't accept this. We hear a lot from this government about growth, but if they were truly serious about this, they would be investing in the NHS as it would give a return. The research shows that. Having so many people nationally unable to work due to long-term sickness really is no good. And that's what we're seeing due to you know, the backlog's topping 7 million now. Research has shown for every pound invested in the NHS, it generates a four pounds return. So increasing pay for public sector workers is an effective way to support the economy, boosting spending in every community and every corner of the UK. The Treasury would benefit from increased tax revenues and reap benefits of people spending money too. And also running the NHS with 135,000 vacancies is so expensive. Trusts are paying incredible amounts to agencies to cover shifts. We heard in the news last week, um, an agency had been paid £2,500 to cover one nursing shift. Total spending on agency staff is up was up by 20% in the last year to £3 billion. And that is what that staffing deficit is causing. Taxpayers are left picking up that bill while their own standards of care suffer. This is completely wrong. So investing in our NHS, starting with a decent pay rise so we can recruit, so we can retain staff, it's the right thing to do. It will safeguard care and it will grow our economy. So in terms of the strikes, the health secretary met with leaders from the health unions this week. Um, but I really don't want anyone to confuse those meetings for any form of serious discussion on pay and safety. In fact, Steve um, Barclay unbelievably refused to discuss pay at all during these meetings. So the Conservatives government, they only have themselves to blame as we're gearing up for large scale strikes across the NHS this winter. Workers have been pushed to the brink and they refuse to accept themselves and their patients being put at risk any longer. So today we've heard the Royal College of Nursing call for formal detailed negotiations with the government, government on pay and safety ahead of the strike dates being announced next week. And if these negotiations don't take place, we're going to be seeing coordinated strike dates across health unions announced this side of Christmas. And there's just no time to waste on us getting going with this. We've had 12 and a half years of this government and we keep hearing questions of how are they going to fix this mess. But I think, you know, we can make no mistake, the mess is theirs and they've got no intention other than continuing leaving the most vulnerable to suffer. And that's what we're seeing. We can't allow this, which is why we're seeing this resistance. We're seeing workers fighting back in their unions, in their communities. Um, so before I finish, all I want to do is express solidarity and strength to all workers who are currently in dispute. Um, NHS workers stand with you so please stand with us too in the resistance join us on picket lines and get behind us thank you
Thanks, Holly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, really echo that uh, those concluding remarks. Um, and yeah, and certainly I 100% agree. You know, one way you could solve begin to solve a staffing crisis in the NHS is by paying staff what they're owed. <laughs> that definitely. Um, thanks for that. Um, I'm going to move on to our next speaker. Before I do, I just want to say that hundreds of people have joined the call, um, including uh, from all over the UK. So I've, uh, on my list that I've been sent, I've got Norfolk, Newcastle, London, Edinburgh, Brighton, Brighton, Bristol, Berwick-upon-Tweed, Kent, Oxford, Stroud, Cornwall, West Oak, Walsall, Warrington, Durham, Shropshire, but we don't just stop uh, uh, at the, the borders of the country. We've also got people uh, tuning in from Portugal, Sardinia, Slovakia, Brussels and Indonesia as well. So as, as ever, um, it's fantastic to have uh, people viewing from abroad and internationally too. And Arise is always, is always very happy to engage internationally as well. Um, so our next speaker uh, is Andrew Fisher. Andrew, uh, Andrew actually wrote a book on the, the on the austerity 1.0, the failed experiment. Um, so he, he's he's well qualified to tell us how the, the second time is going to fail. Um, he's a journalist writing for the I newspaper and has been an economics advisor to people across the labour move, movement and most recently um, the Corbyn leadership. So over to you, Andrew, um, to tell us more. Thanks, Sam. And uh, yes, I'm, I'm old enough to remember austerity 1.0. So um, there we are. Um, look, we're in the perfect storm economically at the moment. We've got high inflation. It hit 11.1% um, this week. We've got real terms cuts in pay in people's incomes, um, falling 2.7%, according to the ONS, just a couple of days ago. We've got rising evictions and repossessions of, um, uh, of people who've got mortgages or people who are renting. Um, and that's because people have got less money. Lower incomes mean people can't pay their bills. Um, we've got more people in debt. Citizens Advice are advising more people than ever before. Um, and as a result of those falling incomes, and as a result of the fact that people are having to spend more of their money on rent, on mortgages, on energy bills, they're not being able to spend in the shops, which is causing falling retail sales. And actually, if you look at those figures, they really are the canary in the coal mine. I think a phrase John McDonnell used earlier. But retail sales have been falling since the summer of 2021. We're on the brink of seeing a lot of layoffs a lot of business collapse if we're not very careful. And I'll come on to what the solution to some of that is. And we've seen just the first uptick uh, just this month of rising unemployment. Unemployment went up 127,000 in September. Um, and to compound all of this, we've got the Bank of England putting up interest rates, which punishes people in debt, which punishes people who are trying to refinance their mortgage or are trying to take out a mortgage for the first time. So it's not surprising then that there's this consensus that we are in a terrible state, the Bank of England says there will be a prolonged recession. The OBR predicts five quarters of recession in its forecast today. So this is serious. And it's the result of compounding crises that have been formulating for a long time. First of all, the banking crisis in 2007-8, which is what kind of knocked our economic model in the UK, which was we've got this wonderful finance sector based in the city of London. It's booming. This is the kind of post-Thatcher Lawson boom. Uh, creates stable growth, boom and bust is gone, as, as a Labour Chancellor unfortunately said, and then it collapsed. And that ability to take those revenues and put them into public services went with it. And what you saw is a very quick unwinding of some of the progress that was made under the last Labour government in terms of reducing poverty and so on. That was then compounded by George Osborne's austerity, which again, then, like it is today, is a political choice, not an economic necessity. We've then had Brexit, which has reduced our trade, 
um, and hit incomes and as well. We've then had the pandemic, which shut down the economy globally for uh, you know over a year, off and on. And then we've had the energy crisis due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, again, compounded by bad decisions we've taken here in the UK in terms of selling off our energy and having no uh, gas storage facilities or very few compared with other countries. So what are the priorities for us, for the what we should have heard today, if you like, if we'd had a socialist chancellor, what would they have done? That, in my view, there were two priorities that we should have had today. One is to increase demand, which is what you need to do in a recession. And the second is to suppress inflation. Now, there are lots of ways to suppress inflation. The right will argue that's driving down wages. That's you know making sure you don't have a, a wage price spiral, which is there's no evidence for that happening in the UK economy at the moment. Important to emphasize that. But there are other ways as well. So let's just run through some of this. So if you're increasing demand within the economy, we're in a recession. We need people spending money to save businesses, to save jobs, uh, to keep people in work. What you've got to do is protect pay, which is what trade unions are trying to do when they strike, whether that's in the private sector, people like uh, CWU, whether that's uh, RMT members on the privatised rail franchises, whether that's public sector workers like nurses uh, who will be striking shortly. It's about doing that. And we've seen today, Jeremy Hunt made a big play of, oh, I'm going to increase the national minimum wage by 9.7%. Well, that sounds like a big increase, but it's a real terms cut. Inflation is 11.1%. You're giving the poorest people in work a real terms cut in their income. This is ludicrous. You would create jobs. You do economic stimulus. Goodness knows we've got to transition to a carbon free economy very quickly. You would invest. If you were serious about this, you'd pile on masses of investment. Now, people would say, oh, but we can't borrow at the moment. The markets won't allow it. But actually, what the markets didn't like was this myth that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng peddled that cutting taxes for the very richest people will somehow boost the economy. Because the problem with rich people is, is when they get more money, they don't spend it in the economy. They store it offshore and it doesn't increase demand. It doesn't boost growth. It doesn't do the things that do, which is why our solution should be to tax the rich more heavily. And you saw Jeremy Hunt again pretend he was doing this. He said, oh, we're going to take on a bit of wealth. Here's, here's something on capital gains tax. And what he did was cut the tax-free tax allowance in half, which is a tiny, tiny, modest amount. I think it raised one or two billion a year, when actually, if you just equalised the rates of tax for capital gains, this is people who earn their money through investments rather than through work. Um, if you equalise those rates with income tax, you'd raise somewhere between 15 to 25 billion a year. So it's a different order of magnitude. And that's just one tax rise that you could do. Um, and if you put that in the pockets of the poorest, that would do you a lot of good. Now, of course, it's it's good that benefits and pensions went up by inflation. The answer for us as well is to build on that twofold. One is to say, well, if that's right for people on pensions and benefits, and it is, then how can you say it's not right for low paid workers in public services in areas where you're trying to recruit and retain staff like nursing, like care workers and many other professions around the country. Secondly, I think what Hunt's done is actually reduce demand in the economy. Um, and the OBR proves this because it says household disposable income is going to fall by 7.1% over the next two years. That is the deepest and most sustained fall in household income on record. And this is, this is ONS records going back to the mid 1950s. We have never seen anything like this in most people's living memory, to be honest. So this is a huge fall in incomes. And what is going to fuel that next year 
is the fact that energy bills, the, the amount we pay is going up by about 43 to 45%. And let me just explain how this works because Hunt again, this conjuring trick says, oh, I'm, I'm extending the energy price guarantee. Well, two things with that. Firstly, it's going up from 2,500 pounds currently to 3,000 pounds. So that's a 500 pound increase. That alone is on my maths, a 20% fairly clean to do, about a 20% increase, 500 pounds up from 2,500. So that in itself, but you've got to remember last year, everybody got a universal payment of 400 pounds knocked off of your energy bill. That's gone. That doesn't exist anymore. So that's another increase. So whereas you were paying 2,100, 2,500 minus the 400 on average, if you're not on benefits, and I'll come to that in a minute, you're now going to be paying 3,000. So that's a 900 pound increase. That's a 43% increase in your net energy cost next year. If you're on benefits, now you might think, oh, they've got it better because he said it's three grand, but they're going to be 900 pounds um, knocked off for people on means tested benefits. The problem is last year, people on benefits got 400 pounds the universal payment plus 650 means tested on top. So that was 1,050 off of 2,500. So their net energy cost in the last year, 1,450, that now goes up to 2,100. That's a 45% increase in people's energy costs if you're on means tested benefits. So this is not suppressing uh, people's, this is not suppressing inflation. We could suppress inflation if we did what France has done. France nationalized its energy at the beginning of this crisis and capped increases at 4%. This is doable. Ours have gone up from 1,277 last winter to 2,500 this winter. That's a 95% increase. And again, going up to 3,000. So our solutions have got to be an energy freeze, a real energy freeze, paid for by a much more substantial windfall tax on the energy companies, public ownership in the longer term as well, a rent freeze, and cutting transport fares. If you look at what Germany has done around this, actually, to, to their credit, look at what some of the Labour mayors in the north of England have done around reducing bus fares, which is the one lever they, they actually have, um, then that's good. But instead of that, we've got the Bank of England pretending you can control global energy prices by hiking interest rates, which punishes people in debt or with mortgages. That is not going to suppress inflation that is caused, as the OBR says, as Jeremy Hunt tried to say, by global factors. But he's not doing the things he could be domestically because they are unpal unpalatable to Tories. So they're One the sort of things we've got Andrew. to be calling for. And I am winding up on this point. So as well as supporting trade unions in increasing demand by calling for better wage rises, we've got to call for better benefits uh, for people. We have the lowest pension in Europe. We have the, some of the lowest social security rates in Europe. I could just give you one quick example on this. I think I'm right in saying the um, the unemployment benefit in the UK is just under £80 a week. It works out as it's now universal credit. In Ireland, you get £183 a week. And Ireland isn't the most generous, by the way, in Europe for being unemployed. So it's a very ungenerous system. We have to fight that and we have to suppress inflation, which means supporting calls for rent freezes, anti-evictions campaigns, support renters unions and so on as well. So uh, there's lots we can do. But the two vital things we've got to do is increase demand and suppress inflation, but both in a socialist way. Thanks, Angie. Yeah, absolutely. And on that final point, too, actually, I, I always kind of think that the Tories are always completely silent on renters. Like I don't know if it seems to say anything at all. Um, yeah, thanks so much. I'll just go to our next speaker, and it's Professor Oslam um, Onoran, who's a director of the Greenwich Political Economy 
Research Center. Over to you, um, Oslam. Thank you very much. As you can see from the banner behind me, we are starting a wave of strikes at higher education in all of our 150 universities starting from next week. Uh, so visit us at the picket lines as well. There will be some teach house where we will be discussing issues uh, that are very closely related to what we are talking now. So coming to today's uh, autumn statement, it's a budget of real cuts to public investment and services while it's shy on taxing the rich and it's full of pretense. Um, it is offering very little really to genuinely address the crisis in cost of living, inequalities, care crisis, housing, debt of households or firms or the climate change. Uh, and as opposed to the conservative budget that we have seen today, we actually need not only increase in public spending to meet the rise in costs, but we need also to mobilize a much larger massive amount of public spending in investment in the green economy and in the care economy if we want a green, caring, just transition in the time uh, the nature is calling for it. So if you think of the conservative budget that is full of symbolic posturing today to capture the headlines, um, what would be our alternatives? I'll go over some of the things uh, they're offering in the name of being compassionate and solidaristic. So let's talk about what they're doing on the taxation front. They're freezing the tax thresholds uh, and increasing the income about 125,000 uh, pounds a year to 45%. This is not much compassion and actually it's also not gonna raise the amount of income that we need to fund the necessary amount of public investment. They've changed the annual tax exemption allowances on capital gains and dividends. Instead, they could be taxing capital gains at the same rate as labor income. That's the least they could do. They've increased the windfall tax, uh, but instead of that, they could actually introduce a genuine progressive tax on wealth targeting the top 1%. This is something I'm gonna detail uh, later uh, in my final minutes, and I'll be talking in more length uh, on particularly this aspect on Monday at the Socialist Campaign Group's uh, policy forum that has been posted in the chat. Um, so the, if you look at the mainstream press, they're labeling that as the biggest tax rise in 30 years outside the pandemic, but it really is not enough revenues raised to fund the massive urgent public investment in the green or care economy. Uh, it has been said by other speakers before, there is nothing about public sector pay. Uh, the in increases uh, are still projected to be way below inflation, where indeed they have to be above inflation to cover for not only the losses of the past years of austerity since 2010, but also to really honor all the hard work the key workers have been doing uh, in the health sector, in education, in care, uh, in transport, uh, in, in the council work. So this isn't actually even being talked about. Um, and if we look at what has been done with minimum wage, the press talks about it as, oh, these are the winners of the budget, 
but 10 pound an hour with the cost of living crisis with inflation of 11% that we are facing today is really not going to cut it. What we have been campaigning for is a 15 pound an hour minimum wage. That is, that would have been way more than the 10% increase that has been uh, offered today. Um, again, uh, it is a good thing that the benefits have at least increased in line with inflation, but it's certainly not enough uh, to restore all the cuts that have been done to benefits since the more than decade long austerity since 2010. Again, one rabbit out of the head for uh, Jeremy Hunt was the rent controls in the social rent sector, capping the rise of social rents at 7%. Uh, but again, A, this rise is uh, still a very high rise, given that the rents, even in the social uh, sector, social housing is very high compared to the income of people, but certainly there's no talk about rent control in the private housing sector. So again, it's a token, it's a pretense thing. Um, there is some talk about, of course, targeted energy cost support, but that's again not addressing the degree of poverty the households are facing, uh, very tough choices between eat and heat. Um, what we would need, as Andrew has said before, as we have been campaigning since the start of this cost of living crisis, is uh, an energy price control that does guarantee basic energy needs for households, and along with that, nationalize, particularly the failing gas suppliers, moving uh, forward to a publicly owned uh, energy uh, supply. Now, of the little small increases in today's budget, those small spending increases are mostly delayed until 2025. And even then, the projected net increase in education or health or social care or the green economy in insulation, for that matter, are way below what is needed to address the scale of the challenge in terms of the care crisis or the uh, climate uh, crisis. Uh, it has been discussed already before me, but the inactive population due to long-term illness, the elderly people who can't be discharged from hospitals due to lack of social care capacity is putting a bit big burden on the providers of these public uh, services, but it's also putting a big burden on women who have to, uh, of course, cover the lack of adequate levels of public provision of care. And many women are themselves dropping out of the labor force because they have to care for these long-term uh, ill uh, people or the elderly in need of uh, care. That's all a drag on productivity. That's all a drag on our national income. Um, one thing that they're proudly advertising in their pretense that they're investing in the green economy is that the government will double annual energy efficiency investment with new funding of six billion pounds. Sounds like good news, but the bad news is that doubling does not happen until 2025. By then, some people suffering from the energy bill crisis might have already died because they couldn't afford to heat. And of course, it is way too late to address the climate crisis. They will get only worse uh, by the day. 
uh, there is a big thing about nuclear energy. Well, nuclear energy is neither renewable nor clean nor safe. It's not the answer to climate change. Uh, and of course, there are a lot of traps about postponing larger cuts until after the uh, election, potentially to arrest a Labour government in this misery. So cuts will only do harm to the economy. If we look at the consequence of this disaster budget, it will squeeze real income of working class households. It will squeeze their consumption. It will also discourage private investment. So businesses aren't happy with this budget either. It's going to deepen recession. OVR forecast is a cumulative of 2% decline between now and over a year from now. Economic output won't return to where we were in 2019 before the pandemic way until 2024. So it's basically an entire parliament of no growth in incomes. It's doing even worse if you look at living standards of households. It's going to wipe out eight years of change in living standards with a decline of 7% over two years. So we are going to go back to 2013 in terms of our living standards. There will be massive job losses. The forecast is half a million. Uh, I fear that will go about that. Of course, households and small scale firms will not be able to cope with their debt. There will be defaults. So overall, the fall in national income will mean there will be lower tax revenues. So the debt sustainability, the government's own fictitious target of public debt to GDP ratio will increase. There may be some fall maybe towards uh, the election time, but I doubt that. So need to wrap up soon. Yeah. So this budget is self-defeating on its own terms. The fiscal black hole is a myth. Actually, today the pound has declined, uh, and in a recession, what you would you would need is go against the cycle, increase fiscal spending. Asset fund managers yesterday were saying, "Look, we didn't ask for austerity. We asked for policy gradualism, not austerity." So they were saying this government is driving the wrong lessons from the punishment of Truss's mini budget. We were worried about regressive tax cuts and this fetish of trickle-down economics. We said it's not the answer, but that uh, won't stimulate the economy. This is why we didn't want it, the asset fund manager's side. So that uh, coming to the conclusion, uh, we are not happy with Snuck uh, and Hunt's budget, uh, but of course, Liz Truss and Kortank were wrong too. It doesn't mean that we want to spend without thinking about how to fund it. And the most important tool to fund the massive mobilization in public investment in the green and care economy we need is taxing the wealth off the top 1% progressively. We have our own proposal about that at Greenwich. The research we have done shows that if you put a 1% tax rate on the top 1% of the households, these are households with a net wealth, wealth net of their uh, uh, liabilities that is exceeding three and a half million pounds. That's a lot of wealth. If you put a 1% tax on that wealth and increase it progressively towards uh, the top one per thousand households, putting the tax rate on their wealth at 10%, even after accounting for potential tax evasion, we could raise about 70 billion to 130 billion pounds a year. 
This is about 10 to 16% of total tax revenues currently in this country. This is way beyond the windfall tax or increasing just the tax rate on capital gains income. Uh, this is a way of tackling also wealth inequality. Obviously, wealth tax is what I focused today, but we do have to also emphasize that there is money in the sense that if you spend in the green and care economy, the economy, national income will increase and that will return partially back to the government as tax income. There are, of course, other tools uh, Need you to such wrap up, as uh, using a national investment bank as it, it was uh, proposed by the former uh, shadow uh, chancellor and uh, their team. So I'll stop here. And what we have to say is um, there is a solution. There is an alternative to this uh, disastrous budget for recession. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to zoom on to, because uh, I'm conscious of getting in some questions, to, um, to our next speaker, uh, who is John Trickett. John, over to you. Uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, it's great to be here. I always thank Arise for the work that they do putting these uh, conversations together. It's very important. So thanks to the volunteers, to everybody who's turned up to listen to us <coughs> and to the other speakers who are experts, which I, experts, which I am not. Having said that, I did write, uh, well, my office wrote a 70-page short volume on wealth taxes, and it's very well worth reading, even though it's slightly old now. I think we were the first person to talk about it. After all, we seem to be talking about taxing income for years as a left, but we don't like capitalism, but we never talked about taxing capital. It's a bit weird when you think about it. But anyway, look, I'm glad that we're all talking about it now. Um, I'm not, I'm a politician and I'm a plumber by trade, so I'm not a trained economist or anything, but I just thought I'd mention, uh, and mention a couple of things. Uh, my first thing, first overarching thought is for the left, we've got to find a way of talking the language of ordinary people relating to their experiences. Of course, on a something like this, it's quite understandable that we talk economics and statistics and all the rest of it. And because we need to understand those arguments, but we need to speak to the wider public with a different kind of vocabulary and syntax and so on and so forth. So let me just tell you a couple of stories of people that I've come across. The first is a slightly odd one. I was on the train today coming back up here, back up to York, my beloved Yorkshire, from that hellhole uh, in London, as I regard it. I'm sure that's an offence to everybody who's watching him, but never mind, that's my opinion. Uh, it was pouring with rain, absolutely drenched, torrential rain. And just to set the background, we all know that Yorkshire people tend to moan. We, we're moaners and groaners as Yorkshire people. But we, lo we love doing it. But anyway, the train broke down. That's the point of my story. The train broke down. Um, we were stuck in the middle of nowhere. So naturally, we all started to moan and groan. But over the tannoy, the speaker, the guy who was controlling the microphone said, well, look, They've broken down, as you can see, but the, uh, the the driver's looking into what's gone wrong. The next thing is we can see the driver has climbed out of his cab in pouring rain onto the track, quite a dangerous place, I think. And I don't know if I had a, I don't know if I had a lump hammer with him as well. That's what we would have probably had. And, and after half an hour, he'd fixed the train. We were on our way. And I, and I thought to myself, how remarkable uh, that one person uh, can 
you know, one working class person can make a difference to all, all of us coming back to our homes. But the interesting thing is, cynical as Yorkshire people are, they all began to cheer. <laughs> they were all clapping the driver. It always a bit of a working class hero when you think about it. And I heard a guy behind me who was clearly a business person who'd been on the phone in a loud voice telling his workers what to do. I suddenly heard him saying to somebody on, on the line, he said, you know, he said, these guys, he said, they're worth every penny they earn. I back them. When they go on strike, I am on their side. And I thought, well, that's quite interesting. Of course, we know that from all of us who have been on picket lines. We know that people are going past and cheering, tooting the horns, waving at us. There is a massive wave of solidarity for people who are in struggle. I thought that's quite an interesting little moment in the life, uh, you know, of uh, somebody just coming back up to Yorkshire. But let me just uh, quickly just refer to two other things, two other people. The first is, um, obviously, it's dark now uh, in the morning and it's dark again at four o'clock in the afternoon. I represent 23 separate villages, which were all coal mining villages. And they're quite, it's, you know, in the middle of Yorkshire countryside, the proper English villages in middle England, but they're working class villages. Anyhow, I encountered a woman one morning, very, very early, it was about half past five or six o'clock in the morning, walking in the dark, no streetlights, no buses, no trains. And I stopped and said, look, I, you know, I said, please don't think I'm, a, you know, it's odd, but do you need a lift anywhere? And she said, no, it's okay, I don't need a lift. I don't blame her for saying that. But uh, it turns out she lives in one village, but works in another and has to work, walk to work every day and back in the dark every day. No buses, all privately owned. And I think about her in the winter, walking backwards and forwards, trying to earn a living on a minimum wage. The Tories today increased the minimum wage by 92 pence an hour. But you can't buy a loaf of bread for 92 pence. And so it's not going to go far. And then we know that fuel bills and everything else is go, are going up. So that's a woman working hard. And she told me she had two kids at home. She'd left them there to get their own way to school on the school bus later in the morning. And these are the conditions that people are working. And my final short little anecdote, then I'll make some more general points, is... <clears throat> Uh, a woman came to talk to us in the office and she's running a school uniform bank. Now, it struck a chord because I'm six foot four. But when, I was, when I was 13, I remember putting on about six inches in growth in, in like six months. And my mother keeps on saying to me, you know, you're going out of the clothes every 20 minutes that we've bought for you. And the trousers are too short and all the rest of it. But I had a younger brother, so we passed the clothes on to him. But What's happening now to uh, little the little John Trickets in my patch is you, you know the parents can't afford to buy the school uniform, so we've now got a school uniform back in Featherstone, and you know you can go there and leave your kids' clothes because he or she's grown out of them, and somebody else will use another family down the street, around the corner in the village. Before the summer, roughly three families a week. We're going to that particular school uniform bank. When the schools went back in the summer, 34 families turned up in one evening. One woman with five children who couldn't put shoes on her children's feet 
and they were wearing shoes which were too small. They'd outgrown them probably a year ago, so they were all, all had blisters and toes all curled up inside the shoes. £40 for a pair of shoes, £25 for a shirt, £50 for a jacket. And the schools are insisting that you can't buy it, wear any jacket. You've got to wear a jacket or a shirt or a, or a pair of trousers with the school logo on. So it increases the price. And, um, you know, it's frightening. A family, uh, three women turned up on the following, the following Monday, 13 children between them. I don't know what it's like to be the mother or father of a child and you can't put clothes on them. I don't know what it's like. It was difficult when I was growing up, but it was never that difficult. I grew up in a, you know, we grew up in a pretty poor area. And that is where we are as a country, the fifth richest country in the world. There was a survey done by the Food Standards Agency in October last year. So before the war started in the Ukraine. And because what they're saying now is, well, the reason why there's problems with food supply and costs and why people are in poverty is because of the, you know, the wheat fields in, in Ukraine and so on, not being able to, the supply, food supply chains have, have collapsed. No. Before, the, it may be that war was a twinkle in Putin's eye, I don't know, but back in October, but the war hadn't started, that's my point, and this, one in nine Britons had used a food bank. Not my figures, not Labour Party's figures or trade union figures. These are the figures of the government itself. One in nine people in Britain having to use a food bank. So these are the so this is the background. To, I'm sure we all know that, but it's important to just remember there are human beings behind the figures that we all use. Now, let me just come quickly to today's budget and the situation that we're in. I want to just reflect at the end about where we are with the labor movement. <clears throat> the, uh, there's this really strange economic orthodoxy. It's completely preposterous, but they think that if you control wages and salaries, you can squeeze inflation. And this is the explanation for today's budget and also the actions of the Bank of England. So the, the governor uh, uh, announced something called QT, Q, uh, quantitative tightening, which means that they're taking money, the, the bank is taking money out of the economy. And today we've had this, this uh, uh, fiscal event, which has taken more money, uh, 55 billion, we're told, out of the economy as again. What is this really about? It's about increasing the recession because when um, Hunt or Sunak or any Tory tells the country that, be, that they, there's a recession, as though it was almost God made, it just happened. The recession just simply happened. We don't know how it happened, but it's happened and it's with us. We did. It is utter bollocks. The truth is, the recession was made in Downing Street and also in Threadneedle Street. They are taking money out of the economy. And why? I'll tell you why. Because the, what they call the labour market is too tight. And what does that mean? It means that the bosses can't find workers at the rates they want to pay, low pay. They're having to pay uh, higher wages. And, you know, we've seen some, some struggles which have won significant pay rises. So 
if you increase unemployment, you weaken the will of the working class to fight back and uh, people on salaries as well as on wages to fight back because they're afraid the boss will get rid of you and employ somebody else at a lower rate. That is what's really happening. That is the politics and the political economy of today's budget and the actions of the, of the, uh, the governor two or three weeks ago when he announced QT uh, quantitative uh, tightening. And it's not at all about having to pay off debts and all the other stuff that they've come out with. Now, here's the thing where I think we now, I don't want to go through all the figures because you've heard that from other people. So I'm trying to make the political argument. The first thing is, is the balance of forces in the Labour Party has moved away from the left. Let's, be, let's put it in a mildest form possible. But the balance of, and, and yeah, but the balance of forces in the country is a different, is a different thing entirely. People are angry. They're upset. They're forming food banks, clothes banks, even furniture banks, so acts of solidarity. And you've got teachers, <clears throat> got teachers, the CWU, the FBU, the nurses, the civil servants, the UCU, the RMT, all different types of working people registering really high levels of participation and engagement and commitment to taking action to fight back. And that is where we are as a country, women in communities looking after others' kids and, and trying to help each other. Different community groups have got, we've got village halls opening to try to provide warmth for elderly people to come and keep warm in the winter because they're not gonna be able to heat their own homes. There is a fight back going on and it's our task on the left. There are two tasks it seems to me. The first is, and I don't say one is less important than the other, but it may not sound that way, but it isn't. We've got to provide the arguments because, you know, I go to the COP on a Saturday to do the shopping just so that I get seen our MPs in, in COP today and that kind of stuff. People stop me and they say, well, it's terrible, you know, and I support the strikers and everything. But then they'll also say, but the country haven't got any money. And so we've got to provide the arguments, but it's got to be done in a way that people understand it. Uh, we show that this is one of the wealthiest countries in the world. The unearned income is not taxed at the same level as earned income. And why should people who are wealthy pay less tax on share, on share dividends or on capital gains than people who work for a living pay? It's absolutely ridiculous that that's the case, uh, that wealth shouldn't be taxed at all, basically, in our country. There is a lot of money there, and we should show how it can be done. And in any event... The so-called deficit that we're facing is not quite how it's being described. We've got to win the battle for hearts and minds. And even on the picket lines, you know, I've spoken to postal workers and rail, I've been on all the picket lines um, and railway workers, and they're all saying, you well, to wrap up soon, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm just coming to the finish now, as you can probably gather. People have said to me, you know, well, I'm on strike and everything, but I don't know how the country's going to get through the economy at the moment. We've got to provide the arguments. My final point is this, as well as providing the arguments, we've got to provide the organizational capacity to support people in action. And that means, I think I just caught John very, at the very end. Yeah, there will be resistance. There's bound to be resistance. People simply can't be allowed and won't allow themselves to be starved. And we need to be there. We need to be there alongside them fighting for 
uh, a just a socially just society. I'm convinced that the people of the country uh, can be won for that argument and will join us in the fight if we've got the courage to go out and do it. So I'll finish on that point. Thanks very much. Thanks for that, John. And I think actually it's exactly right to bring up those real stories as well, because that is, is empowering too. It's, it's one of those things that actually shows people experience economic decisions on a very kind of basic level, um, and therefore they've got a right to talk about them. So um, thanks so much for that. Um, just um, gonna go to a, a few questions um, before we wrap up for the evening from the audience, but also I wanted to read this out from David, because it's a good point. David says, the alternatives needed are gonna come from socialism working for the many instead of capitalism working for the few, which I think is exactly right. But the other thing I'd say too is thank you to the 10, pe 10 people who have donated so far. Um, and, and just to remind you, if you can donate, please hit, hit that link. Um, it's how we put on events like this. And um, so what I'm going to do now is just go to uh, four questions. And um, if the panel want to pick one or two, um, don't feel under any obligation to answer them all. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, and then we'll go to um, um, and maybe use this opportunity as a sort of wrap up remark as well. Um, so the, the four questions I've got are, um, anticipating the return, this is from Mark Hayward on Zoom, he says, anticipating the return of a Labour government, don't we need to change the Bank of England's remit? And don't we need a plan for dealing with the so-called market's reaction to the unavoidable rise in government borrowing that will be required in order to build the public sector? Um, Anne um, from Oxford on Zoom says, with the rich getting richer and poor paying, um, disparity in growth of, and, the, and the increase in, dis, and dis, in disparity in growth of economic inequality. Are we not demanding a policy based upon wealth taxes, as some of the um, as panel have already advocated for, and measures around taxing and reforming land ownership? Um, Joe from Salford asks, um, I'm a campaigner with the Don't Pay campaign. Other than the planned strike on the 1st of December, stopping our direct debits, what other ways can campaigners get the energy social tariff reinstated at the energy companies? And finally, um, Jeanette on Zoom says, um, there are lots of financial problems such as the cost of living crisis and including, including pressure on um, NHS services, but the government, especially with the NHS, they talk about an, an aging, uh, an aging um, population. The government seems to be blaming old people all the time, which, which isn't nice. And is there some way that we can change the blame being put on old people? Um, and Jeanette says, after all, they've spent their lives working and paying tax. So four questions there, one on sort of who's being blamed, um, one on the don't pay campaign and the energy social tariff, um, and uh, one on um, wealth, tax, wealth taxes and land reform especially, and then a, a final one on um, the Bank of England's remit and its ability to set rates. So perhaps if I go to just because first on my screen, Andrew, do, uh, do you want to go first? And perhaps like I say, include some summary remarks, Steve, for the discussion. Sure. Um, I'll just pick up two, two of those points. So the first one is, I think, the Bank of England remit. Um, I think it does need to change. I mean, I wrote a piece, actually, for Open Democracy, people can look it up, saying we should actually get rid of Bank of England independence. I think it's probably wrong. But at the very least, we do need to change its remit. This idea that inflation can solely be tackled by raising interest rates is completely wrong. And it's completely out of sync with this crisis. This is a crisis where inflation isn't due to an overheating economy. In fact, we've got the opposite. We've got an economy that lacks economic demand, where it's, it's contracting. 
and we've got high inflation. So it's not the way to tackle it. You need fiscal policy to do it. I think the Bank of England's got to have much more regard to labour market stability, to housing market stability, not just uh, economic stability in the sense of economic growth or the level of inflation. These things are, are more important. The other thing I, I just want to address again, because it's something I, I've written on as well, is about the blaming of older people. I think this is really vitally important. We are an aging population. I'm not just saying this because I'm now middle-aged myself um, and therefore more sensitive to these arguments. But, you know, we are an aging population. That's a good thing. We're living longer and we're living for longer in old age. Um, that's sort of coming down a bit thanks to Tory austerity. But generally, the trend over the last 70, 80 years has been that in quite sharp increases, really. Um, that's a fact. And that is going to cost us more because older people use the health service more. They need social care. All of those things are true. So we are going to have to have serious conversation about higher taxes generally to pay for a more civilised society. That's important. That's not blaming older people. That's just stating the kind of social reality that we have. And it's a positive. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. But what we shouldn't forget, and people talk about the triple lock, often the triple lock gets kind of thrown into this about how, how come in, you know pensioners are always protected and protected. Thatcher cut the earnings link with pensions in 1981. If that link had been restored straight away, so if that link had never been broken, then the state pension, the British state pension, would be £50 a week more generous today, including the uprating since the triple lock. £50 a week more, so £2,500 a year more. And that's without any special allowances, without pension credit, without anything else added on. The basic state pension would be £50 more. And actually, it would be nearer the rates in the rest of Europe. Wouldn't be as high as the best ones, not by a long way, but it would be a bit higher. So pretending this is unaffordable is nonsense. This is about priorities. And that takes you nicely onto somebody who can talk about wealth taxes and so on. I mean, I did a bit in my initial remarks. I'm not going to repeat myself. Um, and I don't want to kind of reiterate my arguments because people heard them uh, the first time around. So I'll, I'll leave it there in this, for the sake of brevity, Sam. And thanks, thanks very much to everyone. Thanks, Andrew. Um, uh, great segueing too. <laughs> um, <laughs> if next, then I can go to um, Oslam. Uh, yeah, uh, I have also posted something in the chat uh, that I have written on both the Bank of England remit and well taxation with further links to research pieces if anyone is interested in the detail. Uh, but with respect to Bank of England, and I have said it to the Economics Inquiry Committee of the House of Lords as well, uh, focusing on narrowly priced stability is wrong. The main target should be full employment, and with that I mean full employment with decent uh, working conditions, not with zero hours or dodgy self-employment uh, status, along with price stability. And Bank of England should accommodate the fiscal policy decisions of a democratically elected uh, government. And if need be, uh, Bank of England's monetary expansion should be used to fund part of the fiscal uh, public investment decisions. That certainly subordinates Bank of England to the democratically elected government. Yes, and it does mean Bank of England will not be independent. Quite on the contrary, it will be dependent on the parliament, which has a democratic uh, remit through its election manifesto. Uh, of course, beyond this, um, it's also very important to 
decrease and eliminate financial complexity in our financial system such that it becomes easier for Bank of England to deliver for its remit, even if it has these dual targets that we want, full employment and price stability. If your financial sector is too complicated, as in the case of our pension funds, not investing for long-term uh, government bonds to deliver you know, the payments to their uh, pension fund uh, members, but they are using the government bonds to borrow short-term from banks to speculate. Such complexity no one had thought about, which though was actually allowed by the uh, oversight of this country uh, of, of the public, uh, of, of the private pension uh, funds, public as well as private pension funds, is unthinkable. So the Bank of England in this occasion had conflicting uh, remit. Once was price stability, they required it to sell government bonds, but then they noticed that, oh, this is putting pension funds who have borrowed with the collateral of government bonds in a very difficult position when the price of uh, government bonds fall and the banks call them to find new collateral. Surprise, surprise, they have to sell even more government bonds, government bond prices plummet, the interest on government borrowing goes up. And I was humbled how complex this whole was and none of us was talking about that. Uh, so regulating the financial system to make sure that it just plays the role that it's supposed to be, which is uh, mediating between savings and investors, nothing more or nothing less. And of course, having a uh, very broad uh, range of capital controls such that we are not uh, in the mercy of uh, private investors. Um, having said all of this, of course, we have to be also driving the right lessons from what has happened to Listras and uh, Quarteng. A country like Britain has the capability to spend, invest, and use all the tools in the policy kit. That does include borrowing by all means, but it should not rely only on borrowing. It has to rely on progressive taxation of income and wealth, and the National Investment Bank, and the Bank of England, and monetize some of this spending. But if you think, like some of the very popular celebrity left economists are telling you in modern monetary theory, you might have heard, you can do just what the US does, spend, uh, and you don't have to tax because that will create its own revenues. No, it won't work like that. If you are serious about green transition, investing in renewable energy, public transport, social housing, insulation, energy efficiency, upgrading the national grid, as well as investing in the health and education and care economy, uh, in childcare, in social care, uh, we need a massive amount of spending. And these are areas where we want to have in collective ownership, public ownership, municipal ownership. We can't just give subsidies and incentives to the private sector and hope that they will invest. We want that to be publicly owned and we want the investment in the right time, right amount, in the right hands done now. So that scale of spending will certainly cannot be funded by just borrowing or just by taxing income. That's naive. So let's get serious and let's talk about the big resource of tax revenue that we're not tipping in, that's taxing wealth.
not just income from wealth, not just capital gains or dividends, it's taxing the stock of wealth. Let's talk about who owns what, and we know that. Um, we know the assets and liabilities of households, and really there is a lot of income that can be raised by leaving the 99% of the households out of this, targeting very comprehensively wealth of the top 1%, not just uh, land, but also business assets and financial assets. Obviously, the degree of evasion and avoidance will differ across assets. But if you target the top 1% with a progressive wealth tax starting at 1%, there is a lot of money that can be raised. Without that, uh, our, of course, uh, drama will be even worse than what trust and quarting has faced. So we have to drive the right lessons. But I'm afraid at the moment, Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer are driving the wrong lessons. They're getting even more timed in terms of a public investment drive. We shouldn't shy away from public investment, but we should find the money where it is. Um, and though, uh, having said all of these, don't misunderstand me, public borrowing for investment is a good uh, tool, but it should be one of the tools. And the more... Uh, funding of that kind of investment has to come from uh, taxation of wealth and mobilizing a network of financial investment bank, cooperative banks and regional investment banks, as well as using the Bank of England monetary policy wisely well targeted. This doesn't mean that our government won't face uh, the threat of the financial markets. The way to deal with that is capital controls. But it will still be there. It's, I'm not going to make this look like a walk in the park when a progressive government rises in the polls. The day before we, we see the election results, they will try to relocate whatever they can off their wealth. But there will be still a lot left for us to tax and invest. Thanks very much, Aslam. Um, I'm now going to give uh, the last word to um well, I'll say a little bit after him, <laughs> to John. And actually, I wonder, John, I remember, I remember you being very involved in the Land for the Many projects. And I, like, I know there was a thing on land, a question on land reform. Um, yeah, um, over to you. Well, so, well, I, I, first of all, I thought that David made, good, made a good point. I think probably we all agree with it. Uh, socialism for the many, capitalism's for the few. Uh, that is a good point. Somebody else has already spoken to uh, Jeanette's point about old people. But I do think that the Bank of England and the question of land are quite important, actually. So it's not simply the Bank of England, though, is it? It's the nexus of financial relationships in the city of London, which is such a dominant part of our uh, capitalist economy, that uh, it's something we need to think really, really carefully about. I mean, it's a big employer. It produces a large amount, uh, I think 10% probably, of our uh, gross domestic product, the financial sector. But however, its presence distorts the rest of our e economic activity. And so the Bank of England, yeah, it's got a remit to uh, maintain inflation at 2%. Why are we trying to protect the currency? I mean, part, part of it is for all sorts of uh, reasons which affect households. But it's also because London is one of, is, well, arguably, it has been anyway, the largest financial centre in the world. 
And of course, that depends on uh, all the whitewashing of crooked money, which goes on, as they say, through the city of London and into the Crown dependencies. It's a subject for another conversation, but we haven't done enough thinking uh, in the labor movement about exactly how we tackle the character of finance and how it skews and distorts the rest of our economic activity to the extent that we've almost been able to abandon successive governments to abandon our manufacturing capacity, which was, you know, one of the mightiest um, manufacturing capacities in the world. That was never going to be retained as it was, but I think it was accelerated by the domination of finance. And finance, you know, has got its own demands. And it also, I think, because it has a higher rate of profit than manufacturing and other and, and services and so on, if you've got a million or two million pound, not that any of us do, to invest, it's more likely to go into the financial sector than it is into productive economy in, say, my constituency of the north of England or the southwest or wherever. And I always, when I'm thinking about this, so I think we need to extend beyond the Bank of England. But I was going to say, when I'm thinking about this, I always remember Bertolt Brecht's uh, statement when he said, well, he said, if you want to make money from a bank, you'd be better to own one than you would try to rob one. And, you know, I'm not saying that the bankers are all robbers, but anyway, you can draw your own conclusions. But the other point that was raised was about land. And land is a strategic um, asset as well. Actually, when you think about it, if you think about it, land, uh, what, the physicality of the place we inhabit, the land on which we are in which we're rooted, our communities, our, our homes, where our children play, <clears throat> eventually where we die, uh, and so on and so forth. The land, and also let's think about all the, you know, the green issues which are raised by the way in which we manage our land. These are significant factors in the nature of the economy and the way we live our lives. Now, the land is owned by a relatively small number of people. We may all have a garden. I'm not talking about people's gardens. I'm talking about the uh, thousands of acres of land, which belongs still in many ways to the old uh, aristoc aristocracy, which still continues to exist. Thousands of acres. I've got, a, I've got one in my constituency, 3,000 acres belonging to a single, a single individual who's, uh, you know, if you go back in history long enough, they were the bastard child of a, one of our many, one of our many kings uh, of England. And when you analyze, for example, the housing crisis, I'm a building worker. The cost of building a house for the materials and the labor is not a massive amount of money, but the land which the house sits on makes the price of the houses inaccessible to most working people. In my area, the average income in my area is 20,000 after tax, 20,000. But the average cost of a house is 200,000 and it's just out of reach. And the same applies to London and many other places too. So I commissioned George Monbiot and a group of people and we wrote a paper called Land for the Many. And what it does is it proposes a different way of landing, of using land development values than letting the capitalist builders sit on land banks or to take large amounts of money for building houses on it. And I think that has to be something which we need to think about. Now, go back into labor history and labor movement history. It's not that long ago that we used to talk about the land. 
I'm not talking about old-fashioned nationalisation now, but there are ways of doing it. And uh, George Monbiot's paper, which was described by uh, one of the world's leading Marxists as the most radical paper that the Labour Party had produced, uh, had been producing our country since Beveridge, I think, it was not not many people. We didn't make enough of the of that uh, land for the many report. But I'm proud to be in part of it. It's a very important document, and we ought to do something more about it. So I suppose my final point is this. Only the left can think big, can think strategically, as we've heard tonight, and can resolve the problems facing our country. Only the left can really do that. The, the British establishment, the right-wing politicians of whichever party, they've got no imagination, no commitment, and they've got more of a stake in the status quo than they have in trying to look after the majority of people in our country. Only we can do that. But we've got the self-confidence to stand up and be proud and say who we are, what we believe, and how we think these problems can be solved. We've got to have the self-confidence to make the arguments in ways which people can relate to and understand. And finally, we've got to have the organisational capacity to deliver for working people um, the organisation which is required to resist they drift into an extremely right-wing position. And if the left doesn't do that and find its way of doing that, tell you what's going to happen. A right-wing force to the right of Farage will emerge and take hold of those communities who have not simply been left behind, but been held back by a society which simply isn't working uh, for any of them. And thanks so much. Thank you so much, John. That's uh, absolutely a vital warning, I think, at the end um, that you touched on there. Um, it's been a real great session today. I've learned a lot I'm talking from our speakers. Um, and, and thank you to those who have joined us and tuned in today. Um, as I said, the event's been hosted by Arise Festival. Um, and I'd just like to thank the, the Arise Festival well, the Arise Festival volunteer team and Patrick and Matt and, uh, and Ben and others on the call. Um, our key message from today is that um, to all those people on the march right now, on the march to defend the living standards um, and the, their wages um, and, their, and their conditions at work and, and, and uh, you know, and our fighting against the sort of soaring cost of living and the attacks um, the Tories have made on health, our rights to protest and our livelihoods. We stand with you and we're here to offer you a platform to keep taking the fight to the Tories and we will build the massive movements that we need to resist and defeat this whole rotten Tory ruling class offensive on our health, our rights, our jobs and our livelihoods. Um, and it's through events like this, I think that we can help and um, build the arguments against what they're doing and, and urge people um, to take action to tackle the crisis. Um, please take on board the action links for that reason um, that we've been posting in the chat, including by donating. Again, we can only put on events like this through your donations. Um, so, so use that link we, we've provided. Um, and follow our media partner too, Labour Outlet, um, and support our Workers Can't Wait petition. Um, and support the People's Assembly, Enough is Enough, and other networks that are, are fighting against Tory austerity. Because we've got to build the resistance to the Tories, and we've got to popularise the socialist solutions that we know uh, are, are the answer. So let's do that together, and I'll, I'll see you on a picket, or I'll see you on a demo. Thanks so much for coming. <laughs>